And it's Jameson Fink with another episode of Wine Without Worry. Today, my goal is to introduce you to a wine blogger turned winemaker. And I'm not talking about myself. That would be kind of egomaniacal and a little weird. But actually, I'm going to talk with William Allen. He's the owner and winemaker of Two Shepherds. Uh, it's a winery based in California, and he's making some wines from some very interesting grapes, not the usual suspects you might think, like uh, Chardonnay and Cabernet. Not that there's anything wrong with those fine powerhouse grapes. But I always think about the, you know, the job of a winemaker and what a winemaker spends their time doing, and I'd sort of like to uh, just you know, move the curtain back on that and talk with a winemaker about uh, what they really do and sort of, you know, the, the highs, the lows, the hidden things, the behind-the-scenes things that you don't see uh, when you open a bottle and enjoy a glass. So, um, William, my first question for you is, well, first, thanks for being on the show. But my first question is, how do you, um, when you're, when people uh, talk to you as a winemaker, what, what's one of the things that they're surprised to find out that you spend a lot of time doing? I think that one of the biggest surprises people have is that I manage to do everything I do on top of uh, juggling a full-time day job but I, um, and being a one-man show. So that the fact that I don't outsource or have people that help with marketing or, or this or that, so that you know, everything from the website to all of the, all of the labor that's involved, um, you know, making wine is a very long, meticulous process. I've grown to, oh gosh, almost 1,000 cases this year. Um, yet I cling desperately to my um, my passion as a small lot winemaker, so I may have as many as 14, 16, 18 different lots, <clears throat> and just the amount of oversight and labor and intensity that, that, that goes to doing all that, um, I continue to do it myself, so my own toppings, my own rackings, tasting through all the barrels, my own blending trials, um, the fact that I actually drive and pick up a lot of my grapes, uh, you know, the amount of time I spend in the vineyard, um, people just kind of boggle sometimes how, how all of that gets done um, by myself. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a full-time <laughs> job, not to mention a full-time job on top of your uh, full-time job. But I, I what I wonder is there are probably a lot of people who, uh, you know, make wine at home or, you know, dabble in, in winemaking, just little projects. But how do you how did you decide to go from uh, sort of, you know, experimenting with winemaking for your own pleasure and maybe some bottles that you can give to friends to becoming a, a commercial winery where people can find your wine in um, restaurants and shops. How do you make that decision and what, is, what does that entail? The, the whole plan happened very organically. Um, I, as, as you were aware, I was making both wine and beer in my garage for, for quite some years. Um, and, and a number of things happened. One, the amount of wine I was making started to approach legal limits. Um, Thanks to prohibition, we're only allowed to make 200 gallons a year of wine, which is pretty small. Uh, I made a decision I wanted to start making <clears throat> multiple varieties and blends um, and decided, okay, at some point a forklift and, and professional equipment would actually be useful for the manual labor. And, and people were always wanting to buy the wines that I was making. So I, I made a decision in 2010 to at least make uh, my first seven barrels in bond at a winery. <clears throat> and by the time people started tasting them, they're like, man, you have to put a label on this. You know, you have to let people buy this wine. So I dove headfirst quite blindly into that process, which is something we're still um, working through four years later, all the, the, the labor and mysteries that go into starting a label um, that are as fun as the uh, the artisanal side of it. Yeah, and uh, just want to let people know they can go to twoshepherds.com to find out more about your story and, and, and explore the wines. Um, 
what what's in in hindsight if you, if I was let's say I'm uh, uh, I dabble in winemaking at my home and I'm thinking geez you know what I'd like to make uh, Jameson Fink Vineyards a reality what um what would, what would be a couple of pieces of, of advice you would give me about the you know going from a hobby to a, a professional. Uh, Start with a partner. Don't do it by yourself. <laughs> for one, <laughs> um, amass as much capital as you humanly can, um, and prepare for growth uh, much earlier in the phase. Um, you know the, the label's done quite well, and I've you know I found myself um, several times you know having to struggle to build infrastructure, you know such as website and online ordering, and and going from manual processes to more automated ones that are far more painful to do after the fact. So. There's a careful balance in how much money you spend up front and, you know, build it and hope they will come, but you, you definitely need to to plan um, probably because I did it fairly organically and just kind of let things happen each year. Um, it's having a little bit of a better plan, I think, would be one of my big advices, and don't do it alone. Yeah, so these are this is so I guess focused on all the unromantic uh, sides of winemaking and, and and running a business rather than the, the the romance. Like, don't forget about that aspect of it, the stuff that no one wants to think about and until it's kind of too late. Yeah, obviously you need to understand winemaking and and which is a you know a lifetime journey. In my opinion, a, a lifetime isn't enough to uncover all the nuances of winemaking. I mean, there's obviously all the things that you know get get good grapes, get the very best grapes you can get get great vineyard sites, um, you know, talk with as many people as you can, get as many as opinions and input, um, and know what you're doing as best as you can. Um, but, you know, the assumption that you're going to make good wine <clears throat> at the end of the day, as Randall Graham once said, some, you know, money has to transact hands, and the way you fund your business, um, you know, is by selling wine. And, uh, and I guess the other part is have a strategy. I, I see too many people that, you know, come into the market with a brand new product and don't have a niche pointed out or how, you know, are you going to be retail? Are you going to be wholesale? Are you going to sell direct to consumer? And if so, how are you, how are you going to distinguish your brand from the many hundreds of small brands that pop up seems like every week now, thanks to the growth, the growth and custom crush here in California. So, um, <clears throat> you know, that though, all those things are as important as obviously at the end of the day, first and foremost, you have to make a phenomenal product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So where uh, where is your winery in California? Where are we? Uh, where where am I chatting with you? Uh, I'm the winery. I live in a small farm a couple of, a couple of miles away, but the winery is an urban winery has has become very popular here, um, particularly for small winemakers in Santa Rosa. And I um, I share the facility with two other um, uh, popular small wineries here, um, Sheldon Wines, and and uh, Crutes Family Cellars. Mm-hmm. So the three of us share the facility, which is a great way to um, help each other during the challenges of harvest to save costs. You know, as we've said many times, getting into the wine business is incredibly capital intensive. So anything that you can do to share time, resources, costs, facilities um, is a great way to go. And where do you get your grapes from? Oh, boy. <laughs> 2014, uh, 2013 was, was quite an expansion year for me. So the majority of my grapes, and I started – um, with long-term contracts in Russian River Valley with um, Sarah Lee Kundi, who's a 24-year grower here in the Russian River. But um, I, I've, I've expanded, <clears throat> and my Grenache Blanc has always come from Santa Inez Valley that was uh, very che- carefully chosen. But this year I was able to get access to some pretty amazing things. Um, Grenache Gris from Mendocino, which is a variety people don't even know exists. Yeah, I, um, I didn't know it existed. <laughs> I've heard of Pinot Gris, but not Grenache Gris. No, it's so it's uh, it's in the Grenache family and a fairly obscure variety. Um, 
things like uh, I got some Sanso from the be- famous Bechtold Vineyard in Lodi, which is 135 years old and believed to be the uh, uh, the oldest surviving Sanso vineyard in the world on original rootstock. Um, so, you know, part of as I constantly look for great sites, great vineyards, great terroir, great um, exciting varieties to work with. You know, I constantly have my eye out on, on you know, what what is coming next um, in the portfolio. Because one of the challenges is you have to really look two to four years ahead. If you, you know, you calculate vinification cycles, getting to know a vineyard, um, getting to know a new variety, um, you know, to, to constantly bring kind of fresh, exciting new things, which excite me as well as the people that buy from me. You, you, you've got to have a two to four year window kind of looking out about what's what's next. And what is it about? So you, I guess, you know, we, there are some other grapes that don't fall in this category, but I, I would say you're best known for um, Rhone style uh, wines, or, or made from grapes from the, you know, France's uh, Rhone Valley, like uh, Syrah, Grenache Blanc, Mouvedre. What was the um, appeal of those grapes for you, uh, and especially as a California winemaker versus, say, Chardonnay or Cabernet? Uh, it was it was really my own passion, and I, I think like many small winemakers, I, I make wines first and foremost to my own palate, my own passion. Um, when I was blogging actively, I was well known for my love of the Rhone category, um, and one of its staunchest advocates. Um, so it was kind of an it was it was very much a natural um, segue. These are the wines I wanted to make. I also wanted to start to show that um, similar to my palate, which I, I kind of don't lean towards the bigger New World. Um, uh, style of wines that Rhone wines in California could be made with a lighter hand, a more elegant touch, um, lower alcohol, no new oak, um, and so kind of put my money where my mouth was, and and make the style wines of Rhones that I've been espousing. I, I had dabbled, I had made Chardonnay, I had made Sangiovese. I was all over the board when I was a when I was a home winemaker. Yeah, well, that's how that's definitely, um, I'm sure, how you learn and you refine what you want to work with. What I'm interested in is, you know, there's definitely, um, and coming up, I'm going to try a few of your wines, but, you know, you definitely taste that Rhone influence uh, in, uh, in the Syrahs and in, in the white wines and the Grenache Blanc. But how is that, how do you take, um, do they express a certain uh, Californianess to them? Or do you find, uh, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you blend your kind of passion for Rhone style wines and, and what the, the California vineyards give you? What, what comes with when those two collide? And that's where a huge part of this comes down to vineyard uh, site selection. If you look at most of the vineyards I work with, they are often unusual places for Rhones to be grown, mm-hmm. in this case, the Russian, Russian River Valley. So they tend to be, um, cooler climates or cooler sections of, of regions um, to allow, because part of the California challenge is just we get, we typically get much longer growing cycle um, and degree days during the year. So these, these cooler sites that have typically modest days, often fog at nights, allow for uh, longer, proper hang time and flavor development, but at the same time don't get these huge extracted wines. Um, and then I fold into that very much my philosophy of minimalism, you know, no very typically no additions to the wine. Pick pick early, use all neutral barrels. So, in <clears throat> my goal in my wines every year is you're you're tasting a true expression of 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 that vintage, which should be different every year. So the wines are often slightly different. I'm not trying to recipe cookbook the exact right. same wine. Um, 
and the and the and the terroir and the, and all the things that go into that. Yeah, um, you know, you mentioned the Russian River Valley, and uh, I have a, a bottle of your uh, Syrah mm-hmm. from the Russian River Valley. And, and when I think Russian River Valley, the first thing that comes to mind is, is definitely not Syrah; it's, it, it's Pinot Noir. Um, uh, I, I really didn't know there was Syrah in in, in Russian River. How did you uh, How did you come to find that and work with it? Well, that was part of when I first started and I built the brand. Um, everything I had except Grenache Blanc came from Russian River Valley. Um, Sarah Lee Kundi has been uh, she's one of the few people in Russian River Valley that um, had oh gosh they must have 14 different varieties. Uh, so things that many years ago Russian River was a plethora of of uh, Alsatian varieties, um, you know, some some Syrah number of things, and then with the growth and popularity of Pinot Noir, much of that has been slowly replaced. So it was quite the challenge. <clears throat> the other thing is I'm very passionate about Russian River Valley. I, I mm-hmm. fell in love with the place so much I moved here. So between combination of wanting to showcase the region for something besides Pinot Noir, my, my love, it's my favorite AVA in North America, um, and the fact that it, it's close proximity all kind of came together. And then was just very lucky that, uh, you know, Sarah Lee was, was going to let somebody as tiny as me um, you know, get, get grapes from her and as well as farm them to my own specifications, which is the other key when you're working with the vineyard. And when you say, um, you know, like there are tiny amounts of it and, and just for scale wise, I mean, how many, how many cases of, of Syrah did you make? I have the 2011 vintage. Uh, well, some of the Syrah goes into a blend that uh, goes into two blends and then some of it goes into, um, into, uh, the hundred percent Syrah, but I typically only do about two tons a year. Um, which is uh, 100 cases, and then that, that gets split out. So the Syrah, 100% Syrah was a 40-case production. Um, the blend was 40 cases, the two blends. So there was about 120 cases total that were either Syrah blends or um, Syrah by itself. So we're talking really, I mean, I mean, in the scale of things, m- minuscule amounts. I mean, these are tiny amounts of wine that you're yeah. making in the, in the scale of things. Compared to most people, yes. And because my, the aggregate is quite, you know, can even be as large as 800 to 900 cases this year. But in, in many cases, I'm still picking as little as a half a ton of grapes and bottling 25 case lots. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of the ways I'm often called insane by my peers, but it's what I'm I'm passionate about. And I guess at my heart, I'm still very much a garbage yeast. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing, you know, you mentioned in the beginning is that there are so many wineries out there in California, I mean, in Washington and Oregon and across the country in the world and about kind of differentiating yourself and getting your voice heard, getting your wines out there. One of the things I'm curious to hear about is how big of a part, you know, you do everything. Like you said, you're kind of the barrel washer, you sweep the floors, uh, you do all the marketing. How big of a part is uh, in in your marketing getting people knowing what you're doing is is social media. How big of an impact is Facebook, uh, Twitter, and and the world of uh, let's say online wine writing uh, have on on getting uh, the word out? It's been huge for me, particularly in the first couple of years and getting started. I think once you get some momentum, it self propels. But um, you know, I had a little bit of an unfair advantage in that because of my blogging. I, I had a large social media following already. Mm-hmm. Um, people very much respected my palate and would buy wine based on my recommendations. So, and, I, and I've never hit it as I've made that transition that I've gone from William, the, the passionate wine writer blogger, to the, the winemaker. So that gave me a big leg up. Um, and then, frankly, the blogging community, um, working with the right bloggers, because, you know, there they're, are certainly different degrees of expertise sure um, absolutely has been, a, has been a huge boon as well you know people say that wine blogs don't sell wine but i can point to 
many articles by a number of wine writer bloggers <clears throat> that have helped, you know, based on their recommendations, people have bought the wines blind, they've joined the wine club. Um, so I, I'm not as active in social media as I certainly was in the last few years, but it's a, it's a key component, particularly, you know, if you're trying to get started, get your brand launched, get your messaging out there, and let people know what you stand for. Um, because I think it is important to make a, have a voice and people to clearly understand what you represent and what you're passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you're listening to Wine Without Worry. My guest is William Allen from Two Shepherds. Uh, go to twoshepherds.com and check out his wines, his whole lineup, and follow him, uh, follow his winemaking journey. And don't forget to go to jamesonfink.com where you can read more about uh, wines like Hmm, Grenache Blanc, Syrah, and Mouvedre, and I, I, I truly like the unusual and, and the uh, exceptional when it comes to wine as well. So uh, coming up, I'm going to ask uh, William to join me as I taste these wines. I have four wines in front of me, and I'm going to kind of give my uh, impression on them and have him expound on that. So William, you uh, thank you for sending me four wines. I have them right in front of me. Uh, it's you know I, I uh, what I love to do is uh, get up, have breakfast, and uh, open four wines and uh, <laughs> and, and taste them at ten thirty. But um, actually, I I think uh, this is just an aside, but I think morning is the best time to taste wines. Uh, I think that's when your palate's at its freshest. So I have four wines in front of me. Um, which one do you think I should try first? Uh, I would definitely start with the Grenache Blanc. Okay. Um, so, I, just in. It, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, this is based in the order of uh, intensity, and also I find the Grenache Blanc, because of its brightness, is a really great um, palate freshener. When I do tastings, I actually start with the Grenache Blanc, and we finish with the Grenache Blanc, no matter what I'm pouring that day. So it's a good breakfast wine, is what I'm hearing. Yes, absolutely. And, um, breakfast is a champion. Yeah, so uh, let's say I, uh, I drink Chardonnay, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, and Pinot Grigio would probably be the three most well-known white grapes. Mm. Um, what... what what should I? Why should I be excited about Grenache Blanc? Uh, well, in particular, I mean, there's a there's a, my there's a variety of styles of Grenache Blanc. I think what distinguishes the two shepherds, and what also makes the the, the wine interesting, it has it has some of that acidity and brightness that I think people have gleaned to in the in the Sauvignon Blanc area. Um, but it also has some of the complexity and texture of uh, of a well-made Chardonnay. Not not that oakiness or butteriness that's found in classic California Chardonnay, but um, it definitely has, for a wine that is, is bright um, and has high acidity, it also has a really nice roundness and mouthfeel in the mid-palate. So what people, when they first taste this wine, which many people have never had Grenache Blanc, you, it's fun to watch their eyes go wide open because mm -hmm. of this combination of, of great aroma, really great bright fruit, yet very pleasing and soft in the mouth at the same time. Yeah, and I don't just an aside to all listeners. Uh, I am uh, tasting, and as a professional, I am spitting. So uh, because of my professionalism, I'm subjecting you to the sounds <laughs> of of wine being spit out. Um, I, don't worry, I will be drinking it later. Um, two things that I want to comment on. Uh, one is, so uh, you'll be happy to know that I am drinking this Grenache Blanc. I mean, tasting it. Sorry, at a. Uh, I didn't just like pull it out of the fridge. I just put it in the fridge for like an hour and a half, and it's been sitting out for a while. So it's at a cool temperature. And one thing that you mentioned is uh, you, you're, you're a strong proponent of that. So why why should I be drinking it at sort of a cool temperature rather than pulling it out of an ice bucket, super chilled? Thank heavens. I've actually pulled my wine from accounts that serve it over chilled. It's one of the big tragedies of, of white wine, and so many consumers 
you know, don't enjoy or like white wines because they find them uninteresting. And a huge part of that is just getting it too cold. Um, you know, when a, when a white wine is, un, is over chilled, all of the aromas are muted, all of the flavors, all of the nuance. And the beauty of a well-made white wine is there is great complexity, um, but it, it, it is more subtle and nuanced. And you, you mask all of that um, when you serve it at an over-chilled temperature. Think of taking a bowl of soup, pulling it out of the fridge and, and smelling it and tasting it compared to when you heat it up and, and you know, all the fragrance and aromas and flavors that are, are released. So it's, it's a great tragedy. I do actually um, espouse quite regularly to, to serve wine at proper temperatures. So if I was at a restaurant in Sonoma enjoying a bottle of Grenache Blanc on a date and you walked in the restaurant and you saw it there, me, and you saw the bottle in an ice bucket, would you, would you come up and uh, like physically, uh, would, you, uh, would you confront me in front of my date and, and, and shame me? It'd be like the soup Nazi, no Grenache Blanc for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would never happen. I'd never let that happen. Uh, that date would be over. Um, so... One of the things I like about the wine too is that, uh, in you know, reading your kind of background material on it, is um, that you mentioned uh, what you call it. It does see some time in oak, but it's neutral oak, meaning that it, it's oak that uh, is used and doesn't impart any flavor, uh, oak flavor. But it does. What I, what I like about neutral oak is that it gives you that richness and texture, but without that that butteriness that you that you talk about. So I think that's something. Uh, you know, my takeaways from this wine are: don't drink it too cold and even if you, a lot of people, when they hear the word oak, they automatically think, you know, like buttery, rombowery type of, of a wine. But, you know, oak is, oak is not the devil when it's used, uh, you know, judiciously. Correct. And I'm, I'm very passionate about the use of neutral oak. And, and probably every single tasting I do, I have a five-minute discussion on what neutral oak means. Because you're correct. Most consumers immediately react to, you oaked your wines. I'm like, no, it's the exact opposite. Um, and I'm, a, I'm very passionate in white wines. I think too much white wine is made in a very boring format um you know stainless all stainless has its place in some wines but uh, many white wines would benefit from from some of the complexity that comes from spending time in, in a neutral barrel that's porous and breathes and allows the wine to develop um a, a much much more complexity okay uh what should i move on to next three wines to go I would do. Uh, I do. I sent you since you're a wine geek. I sent you one of my weirdest wines. Oh yeah. It's my, it's, I would. I would definitely caveat this is not a wine for everybody, but it's the Trousseau Gris, which right away is probably a variety most people have never heard of. It's yeah. Very, what is what is Trousseau? It's a, so it is a grape family that comes from the Jura region of France. Um, there is a, a red version. So if you if you hear of Trousseau, that is a, a red grape. This is actually a gray skinned grape. It's not white. It's not red. It's in that. Um, it looks like a light pink color. Yeah, it's uh, like a, it looks like a, a rosé. Well, and because this was done as a full spin contact, so the only uh, the only Trousseau Brie vineyard in, uh, in California actually is on the, the road that I live on. It's the Fanuki Vineyard, and there's quite a few small culty winemakers, Wingap, Jolie Lade, and others that work with this grape every year. Um, and uh, it's interesting because it's. People make it as a white, where they just press it off the skins and don't get any color. In this case, I've made it closer to what they would call an orange wine, although this color is not orange at all. It looks like a rosé. So this wine was made just like a red wine, um, even though the grape is closer to white than red. So it basically fermented on the skins for almost two weeks, um, which is where all that crazy color comes from. And what else does... Um uh, keeping the grape skins in contact with the juice for that, besides color, what else does it give to a wine? 
a much more complexity. So you'll pick up um, these the skin fermented whites uh, often have more tannin and structure than uh, than you would expect in a white wine. Certainly a whole fleshiness, um, a fleshy component that comes from being in contact with the skins, uh, as well as in particularly this wine, the aromas on it are just crazy. Yeah, if I if someone served this wine to me and I was blindfolded or I had one of those kind of black glasses, I, it smells and tastes like a red wine. I would be really surprised that it was made yeah. from a a a I guess a white wine grape you could technically call it. Yeah. I like it's, it. It's a very it, it, it's a people. It, this is a very uh, this wine has a very polarized following. It's the first time I ever made it, and it's my only non-run. It's something they either go completely gaga over and gush for ten minutes, or it's just not their their cup of tea. Um, and I, I made it again in 2013, but I decided to make it as a white wine instead. I've, I've tasted okay. pretty much anybody who makes Trousseau Gris in the area, and there are producers like Wingap that make it both as a white and as a, a skin fermented. And uh, so I decided in 13 to make it as a as a white wine for the first time. So just just it's part of the fun of being a winemaker. These are your little pet projects you play with. You have no idea how they're going to come out until they're done. Um, but there's been enough people really enjoying this wine. It's been fun to put in the hands of, of some geeks. But as I said, it's not a wine I think that um, everyday consumers certainly would know what to expect. Yeah, I I really like it. I think it's really fun. I tasted it earlier just uh, just to get a kind of a feel for it right away open. But um, yeah, it's sort of like it's sort of like a mashup between a, a white wine and a red wine. But it's not like a it's not rosé. It's rosé in color, but to me, it's sort of uh, and it has a lot of red fruit flavor too. It kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, like I think if I tasted it blind, I might say it was Gamay or like, like a, yeah, kind of yeah. like a fresh Beaujolais. <laughs> it's really, uh, I think it's really good. I think it's really cool. Yeah, it's it's very fun. I do a few other skin fermented whites as well uh, with uh, Grenache Blanc and Marsan Roussan that are, are would probably be more what you would associate in the orange wine category um, huh. profile wise. But this was pretty fun. Okay, well, let's move on to some reds. Uh, I have a Syrah and a Syrah Mouvedre blend. Which one should I try first? Uh, let's do the Syrah. Okay. And um, one thing I was reading about this Syrah is that this is the t- 2011 that uh, you mentioned in your tasting notes that this is a wine that you, while it certainly could age, that you prefer on the younger side. Why is that? I, it's interesting. I spend some time in the Northern Rhone every year, and I'm asking winemakers the exact same question. I just prefer, there, you know, there's a belief that um, Northern Rhones and Syrahs have to be aged for a long time, and there are certainly benefits from that. But I actually prefer to drink them a little bit younger and get the, the fresh vibrancy of the fruit um, and some of that youthfulness um, as much as I do enjoying one that's been in the cellar for 10 years. Um, certainly some wine, some of those Northern Rhone Syrahs need to age just because of tannins and, and, and bigger elements that need time to, to fade. But um, with my approach and, and, and these wines, they're, you know, you'll, as you'll see right away, there's not a lot of tannin in them. So it's not like you have to put a steak on the back of your tongue to soften it or anything. Yeah. So it's, for me, it's more fun just to experience the fruit while it's fresh and vibrant and young and alive. Yeah, it does have that vibrancy. And I also like it's that kind of that, that like exotic Syrah thing with you know kind of like a – like an olive tapenade type of yep. uh, smells that, that I, I really like. And uh, it's very, uh, you know, I've had, you know, well, a lot of Syrah and a lot of it, you know, it's sort of like uh, made in a muscular kind of overblown style, like trying to make Syrah like you would make a Napa cab, like a powerhouse yeah. thing. And, and and this definitely is much more of a uh, elegant, restrained style, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not a lacy and delicate wine. I mean, there's definitely a, a lot there, and um, it's, uh, it's nice. It's very nice. 
It's it's as close as I can do to the Northern Rhone, which is uh, my favorite region in the in the world for for wine and Syrah. Um, and being from the Russian River, it's a much cooler climate than you know. It's grown on a hillside right next to Pinot Noir, so it uh, it really allows for kind of a little more elegant, restrained, softer side of Syrah, which is what I personally love to drink. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had any uh, Northern Rhone winemakers uh, or, or Southern Rhone winemakers uh, taste your wines? Um, a few. It's been more often that I actually go over there and spend time with each of them. But they've, uh, when I have poured them, they've been very surprised. You know, and unfortunately in, in Europe, most of them don't get access to the the, the small production, right. uh, more unique European style wines. They see all the big big labels, so they're always quite amazed. Actually, the Grenache Blanc in particular got quite a <laughs> um, that. And when I when I pour for Europeans here in the U.S. as well, they're always they're kind of blown away that this is a California wine. It's always really fun to watch the reaction. That must be, I mean, it has to be incredibly gratifying. I mean, you, you, you're inspired by these regions and wines and winemakers to be able to, you know, pour what you make in California that, that has, you know, so much influence from what you taste in uh, the northern and southern Rhone. That must be, you know, uh, really um, a thrill for you. Yeah, it is. I, I love watching the, that first reaction in their eyes and then watch them go from barely wanting to try a glass to, you know, gushing over it later. It's, it's, it's very, very gratifying and rewarding to see that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, on to the last red, uh, so this is a Syrah Mouvedre blend. It's um, 2011. It's 55% Syrah, 45% Mouvedre. And um, tell me about uh, why blend these two grapes. And it's, you know, it's, it's almost a 50-50 blend. Um, how do you decide how much Syrah, how much Mouvedre to put in the blend? Um, through, through blending trials. Um, this one is an interesting wine because I started in 2010 uh, based on just some leftover portions that I blended together and they actually tasted great and I didn't think they belonged in the primary blend. Um, blending trials for me are uh, a long, lengthy um, process that is exhilarating and frustrating at the same time. Um, so, you know, you literally start with changing things in plus or minus five percentages after tasting the components to see what you think would come together. And, and end up with, you know, the very best wine that you can. And do you hope at the end of the day you don't have too much left over that you don't know what to do with because I, I'm very committed to my blends and I'm not going to just dump the last barrel into this blend because that's what I have. Right. So I, I spend with, with, you know, many, many barrels and many locks. I spend an enormous amount of time trying to achieve a, a kind of a vision I have in my head of what that wine should represent. So uh, the Sarama Vedra was a, it was an experiment in 10, and it was so popular. Um, I, I, I was hoping when I was doing blending trials, I would have enough to do it in 2011, and I was able to. So what does Mouvedra bring to the table in this blend? What am I tasting that's different from, say, just a straight Syrah? It, it, it adds a really interesting – so Mouvedra, um, and particularly kind of restrained Mouvedra, um, in, in this case, it adds a, a little bit of kind of a – backbone and, and earthiness that complements the Syrah. But there is one thing that's very unique, and it's the, one of the few times I point out flavor profiles when I pour wines. What I what I wait for to develop in this wine, and really, what really surprised me uh, when I made the first in 2010, is the finish has this really lingering saline note. Um, and I equate it to, sometimes it sounds weird to people, but I equate it to if you're eating a, a rare piece of beef and that the kind of saltiness that is often in the uh, the blood or the juice from a steak. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mavedra really adds that kind of component that you you detect in the mid, the, kind of the back palate, 
and then on the finish. And that only intensifies as this wine ages. It's, it's the last red I release every year. I just released this in December because it takes, and I learned this just through trial and error, it just takes it, it, quite a bit of bottle time for that aspect of the wine to suddenly kind of emerge. Yeah, and I'm sure that's not an easy decision, um, you know, because be giving something extra time in the bottle means, um, you know, you're not selling it too. So that's, that's uh, it'd be, I'm sure it's for a lot of people in your position, it's tempting to get it out there, you know, and rather than kind of wait till you're happy with it and, and send it out to the world at that point. It, it's something you struggle with, and I, I um, with, I'm busy to have so many small lots of ones. I have a number of 2012 whites I haven't even released yet. Um, but you, you, know, you, you do struggle with, you know, I'm paying per month to store these in the facility and watching cash go out the door. But at the same time, I want, you know, this wine is a part of me and my soul, and I, I want it to represent the best that I can. So I, I do tend to sit on stuff and bottle age it um, as long as my wallet will allow. Uh-huh. And then at some point, you know, you, a winemaker would probably sit on a wine 10 years if they could afford it before he released it, but then right. find that right balance of, hey, it's 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 ready. Because you can't rely on so many great wines are released very young, um, and many wines that I buy, you know, I put away for two years. But you can't you can't rely on on people to to do that and expect them to even. So I try and wait until I think the wine is, um, you know, really ready for the for the market. Yeah, absolutely. Well, William, thanks um, for being on the show. I, I really enjoyed tasting these wines. Thanks for sending them. And I think uh, what you're doing is, you know, inspiring to people who dream about uh, becoming a winemaker. And, and, you know, they should t- obviously temper those dreams with some reality that you've pointed out. And I think also for people who are just, uh, you know, California to them means, you know, Napa, Chardonnay and Cabernet, that uh, you're doing some really fascinating things with Rhone varietals and with, um, you know, Trousseau Gris and some really experimental things. So I think uh, what you're doing for people listening out there, it's a great uh, way to introduce yourself to the diversity and some of the cutting edge things going on in California, that it's more than just Napa, it's more than just Cabernet and Chardonnay, that it's a really, I, I mean, I think you would agree with me that now is a really exciting uh, time to be making wine in California and there's so much experimentation and uh, innovation going on and, and discovering some of these things that uh, were just, you know, uh, because they weren't Cabernet or Chardonnay or even Pinot Noir that were kind of just lying fallow by the wayside. Yeah, I agree. It's it's probably one of the most exciting. I'm very blessed that um, I came into the market just at the right time where there, there is a phenomenal shift going on, both in winemaking um, and in what consumers are looking and, and buying for. And, and we're very blessed in the area. Um, people who are not familiar with John Bonet, who is the San Francisco wine writer, has been a, a huge lightning rod and champion um, for for this area and has helped many of us get together. So it's it's a uh, it's exciting for me both as a winemaker and somebody who buys wine. There are a number of my peers who I'm probably one of their biggest customers um, because there are just so many fun, well-made wines coming into the marketplace right now in very small production, which is which is also exciting. Yeah, check out John's book, uh, The New California Wine. It's a great resource for. Uh, you know, kind of getting familiar with some of the, the people and places who are making these wines like, like William's making. So, William, thanks again for being on the show. Everyone go to twoshepherd.com and check out the wine. Sign up for the mailing list. Or if you're, uh, if you're in California, uh, and, uh, seek it out at, at some uh, small boutique retailers and restaurants as well. Thanks for being on the show, William. Thanks, Jameson. Take care. Cheers. Cheers.